Welcome back to Fellows in the Field, a podcast exploring architecture at the intersection of science and humanity. This is Sam and Hannah, the research fellows at SQ Dumas Ripple. For a quick recap of last week, since we'll be referencing some of the terms we previously defined, there are three acoustic properties of a material. The first one is reflection. This is how much sound bounces off a material. Absorption. This is how much sound is soaked up by a material. And transmission. This is how much sound passes through a material. Also remember that the acoustic properties of a space that we should consider are background noise control. These are fixed objects creating noise like your AC unit. Sound isolation. How individual instantaneous noises like conversation, closing doors, etc. are transmitted through spaces. And room acoustics. This is how the composition of the space affects the way these sounds are reflected, absorbed, and transmitted to other spaces. This week we're going to be exploring how we understand our environments through the sense of hearing. First, we need to define acoustic versus aural architecture. Acoustic architecture is the physical properties of a space described in the scientific language of sound physics. So this is the physical side of the sound of architecture. Aural architecture, that's A-U-R-A-L, as in dealing with our sense of hearing, not oral architecture, is the emotional, behavioral, and visceral response to the sounds produced in and altered by space, or the experiential side of sound in architecture. Let's talk about acoustic architecture. How do spaces speak and how do we hear them? There are a few key properties that help us sense our surroundings. First one is reverberation. This is the reflections of sound that hit the ear quickly enough that we hear them as the continuation of one sound. Reverb time, also called T60, is the time it takes for a sound to decrease by 60 decibels. In other words, it's the time it takes for a sound to die away. Soft or reflective surfaces or small spaces have short reverb times and they're called dead or dry spaces. On the other hand, hard or reflective surfaces or large spaces have long reverb times and they're called live or wet spaces. This is what a dry space with a short reverb time sounds like. This is what a wet space with a long reverb time sounds like. The other property is echo. Echo, echo. These are distant reflections that reach the ear later than 50 milliseconds after the direct or original sound. Objective qualities of sound are then interpreted by a person when a sound hits the ear. Let's talk about sound perception. First, sound waves hit the outer ear. The structure that you feel on your face is called the pinna. That acts as a funnel for the sound. Then, the sound wave goes through the ear canal, which is what you wax with Q-tips. And then, the energy hits the middle ear. So it hits the eardrum, also called the tympanic membrane, which relays that pressure through the three smallest bones in the body, which conduct the energy to the semicircular canals in the inner ear. These canals are filled with fluid, and that's what helps you balance. Then the energy hits the cochlea. Next comes the auditory nerve, which sends signals to the brain, specifically the auditory cortex. Sound localization is the phenomenon involving the two ears picking up cues to find the direction of a sound source. Keep in mind that our ears are oriented left and right, so we're better at locating sounds laterally rather than vertically. One concept is called interaural time difference, ITD. This is important for low frequencies. When your head is turned a bit away from a sound source, sound will hit each ear at slightly different times and your brain can pick up that difference in order to localize that sound. Even a subtle shift of three degrees is reliably detected, so the threshold difference in time of three microseconds is enough for the brain to localize that sound. 
Three microseconds is one third of the time it takes for a neuron to fire. The second concept is interaural loudness difference, or ILD. This is important for high frequency sounds. Your head actually creates an acoustic shadow, which eclipses your farther ear and makes it receive a softer sound than the ear directly facing the sound source. And your brain can interpret that slight difference in intensity to determine where the sound is coming from. So if this is how we are able to locate sounds, how do our brains use this information to help locate objects and surfaces and wayfind in the built environment? Let's use the example of walking down a hallway. There's a filing cabinet in it and a radio playing at the end of the hallway. The filing cabinet is going to create an acoustic shadow in which it blocks some of the sound coming from the radio if you're in the shadow. This absence of sound in that space is one indication that there's an object in front of you. Any sound in front of the filing cabinet between it and you will reflect back to your ear. In a process similar to echolocation, these reflections also help a listener sense the presence of an object. This could be one explanation for why we can sometimes feel a person's presence in a room, even if they didn't make noise whenever they walked in. Their body is affecting the ways that the background noise is blocked and reflected throughout the space, and your ears can perceive that difference. This could be, and is probably already a studied technique by somebody, a low-tech and subtle way to incorporate security into design. So if, for example, you placed a white noise machine outside of a door, somebody would hear the difference when someone walks in front of it because of the acoustic shadow. One way to test this at your desk is by moving your hand close to your ear without touching it. You should sense a difference on the side where your hand is. We'll give you a few seconds to try it out. Some people have refined sensitivity to changes in sonic environments so much that they can navigate complex spaces through echolocation techniques. One man named Daniel Kish is one of the few humans who have trained to use that form of echolocation. Although he lost his eyes at one years old due to retinal cancer, he makes clicking noises with his tongue and uses the reflected sounds to make a mental image of his environments, like hiking in Iceland and even riding a bike through a street. We were curious about the interacting effects of hearing and vision, not only on wayfinding, but also on the perception of a space. So we created a test in our office that we tried on our coworkers. Could increased reverberation on its own make a space feel larger or smaller? With their eyes closed, participants first listened to the sound of clapping in two different spaces. One with a longer reverberation time, also more live, than the other. They were asked a series of questions, one of which was to rate the size of a space on a scale of 0 to 10. Participants then went into virtual reality and received combinations of either a small or large room and either dry or wet sounding clapping. Between each round they went into a silent room as a reference for size. What do you think the size of this space is? 0 to 10. This is a 10. Although the visual input pretty much dominated hearing and heavily influenced perceived room size, when blind, the participants ranked the more reverberant sounding space as being significantly larger. This test used pre-recorded sounds that were not created in those spaces, so it's important to note that reverberation is perceived differently in different spaces, and it's directly influenced by the space's volume. If reverberation time is kept consistent, that is, if each space has a one second reverberation time, a large and small space would be perceived as relatively dead and live. But in general, increasing the volume of a space increases reverb time. 
On the other hand, if we increase the area of absorptive materials in a space, we decrease the reverberation time. To test our innate abilities to sense space, we also took a couple of our coworkers on a blind tour. We blindfolded each of them and brought them to a series of spaces, kept them secret by the way, with different acoustic properties. A reverberant brick lobby space, a tall, narrow stair lined with wood, a photo booth, and a restaurant. And then we asked them questions like, how big is the space? It's probably like 20 or 25 feet wide, maybe. How many people are in the room? Uh, about 10. What is generating noise? When I'm talking, there is a guy like dropping or like chopping up ice behind me earlier. What clues are you using to figure these things out? Unfortunately, we weren't able to survey more coworkers before being kicked out of the space due to logistical reasons. But it was still interesting to see how people used sound cues and other cues to gain their bearings. For example, suddenly hearing a distant sound clued them into the room's dimensions. So I hear people pretty far away from me in that direction. Maybe they're like 20 feet away. Other recognizable sounds like kitchen equipment, whirring noises, mechanical noises, or feet walking downstairs were indicators. The act of walking helped create a mental floor plan of the spaces. Then I felt us turn a corner over there. Even smelling different materials like coffee, food, or cleaner helped them tell where they were. Cleaner. There's a lot of cleaner going on. And the phone booth smelled like plastic. To find out a little more about what it's like for somebody who doesn't use vision to wayfind, we also talked to John Joshe, a friend of a friend who lost his vision about a year ago. I was diagnosed with uh, a brain tumor, and it caused pressure on my optic nerves, which once the nerve dies, you can't regenerate it. So I was fully blind since last September. We wanted to know how he creates a mental map of spaces so he can move around. At first it was, I mean, it was pretty exhausting just having to use different parts of the brain to focus a lot more on hearing and, and sounds and stuff like that. I'd be walking down the hallway trying to find the elevator and if I heard, you know, a door at the end of the hallway open and close, then I knew I was that far away from, from I guess, either the end of the hall or the elevator. I used the cane to basically mark certain spots, like a metal trash can, you'll hear the audio response from it if you hit it. And I know, just make a mental note, okay, that trash can is 10 feet from the elevator entrance. A lot of times, sound cues of the program also help him build the picture of the space. Either the carpet or the, the walls, you know that you're in a hallway or you know that your all bathrooms are pretty much tile. So, you know, if you open a door and you start tapping and you hear the texture of tiles, you know, you're either in a bathroom or something like that. He also addressed the popular misconception that blind people automatically have their other senses enhanced. I guess, you know, a lot of people always ask me, you know, did you enhance senses like hearing and taste and smell? And I wouldn't say they're enhanced, I just focus more on those senses. There is evidence that after someone practices a sensory or motor skill for thousands of hours, they can actually change the way that their brain is wired. Wayfinding through non-visual methods is not just relevant for the blind, but it's also important in other cases, like when first responders enter a space that might be filled with smoke, somebody has temporary blindness, whether that's from glare or walking into a really bright or dark space, and also people staring at their phones. Plus, sound supplements our visual sense to help us wayfind. 
As we were coming out of the blindfold experiment, we wanted to know, are we only sensing dimensions or do we sense other things too? This brings us back to those original definitions of acoustic architecture and oral architecture, the second of which is the emotional response in humans to sonic stimuli. So in our experiment in VR, in addition to asking participants to rate the size of spaces based on reverberation time and a visual, we also asked them to rate various qualitative characteristics. We asked them things like, how public or private does this space feel? Does it feel secular or sacred? Cold or warm? Historic or modern? We were also curious if visual or auditory stimuli would play a bigger role. Private to public. Two. Cheap to expensive. Three. Uh, what do you mean cold and warm? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> It feels like the same as the other previous one. Adding reverb made people perceive spaces as more public, especially when blind. But when vision was added, reverberation did not make a significant difference in the perception of those qualities. Another test might look more into experiential effects of sound, but our initial findings suggest that architects should consider the sonic environment when designing spaces for specific experiences. So we've talked about how spaces speak and how we hear them, but how do we listen to them? Well, that process of listening, or the aural awareness progression, usually starts with the physical reality of sound and then goes to the personal relevance of that reality. First, it starts with the raw sensation of a sound. Our brains transform physical sound waves into neural signals. This auditory stimulus has no embedded meaning for the listener. This has to do with what we talked about earlier regarding different parts of the ear and how those sounds are recognized by our brains. For example, we can detect a sound that's 90 decibels lasting two seconds at 100 hertz. The next phase is recognition. Cognitive processes that contain the listener's culture and personal experience transform raw sensation into an awareness that has meaning. So for example, this might be perceiving that 90 decibel sound as thunder. However, this might not be recognized by a person who's never experienced a storm. Therefore, their recognition of that sound has completely to do with their previous exposure to those sounds. The last step in aural awareness progression is high-impact, emotionally engaged listening. This is the visceral response in humans to sounds. These sounds have personal meanings and are different for different associations with each listener. So, for example, we took that raw sensation of hearing thunder, recognized it as thunder, but now the understanding of that sound might be different for each person. So one person might feel cozy in a thunderstorm, but for somebody who lost their house in a storm, it might trigger painful memories. There are some instances where sound has been intentionally sculpted to create a specific emotional response. Like in scary movies, sometimes there will be a scene in which a victim is trapped in a room with a bunch of mirrors. This confuses their sense of vision to be able to perceive where someone is, but also the sound reflections off of the mirrors impair their ability to locate where the sound is coming from. The technique of creating an omnipresent sound is also used in cathedral designs. The huge spaces create incredibly long reverb times. As the sounds bounce around, it also becomes difficult to locate the origin of the sound, and it sounds like it's coming from all around. The feeling is disorienting and leaves us with the feeling of a higher being surrounding us in the room. Perhaps architecture has shaped and created a religious experience. Mm -hmm.
Well, why is all of this relevant for architects? A lot of times when clients speak with designers about their intentions for a space, they talk about goals that have to do with shaping human behavior and health. For example, a retail store might want to increase sales, or a government might want to convey transparency so people will trust them, or a hospital wants patients to get healthier sooner, or maybe an office wants to encourage coworkers to communicate with one another. If architects know how to design buildings in a way that stimulate particular senses that impact human emotion and health, they can also drive users' behavior. If you're as fascinated by this as we are, tune in next week when we'll be exploring physiological, psychological, or cognitive, and sociological impacts of audio and visual stimuli in architecture.